If you have your Bible, please turn with me. Matthew 28, verses 1 to 10. Today we're concluding our short uh, five-sermon series on the life of Jesus in Matthew by considering this event of his resurrection. So Matthew 28, verses 1 and 10. Please hear now the reading of God's holy word. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this wonderful occasion of worship, of celebration, of fellowship. But now at this moment, we come and we sit under your word. This is not a religious book. This is not ancient myth. This is... God-breathed scripture given to us to encourage us and to build us up in the faith, to teach us the gospel, to reveal your character, who you are, and to reveal your salvation, what you've done. And I pray, God, that now you would give to us attentive ears that we would hear and that the word would not be like that of the three seeds, one that was choked, one that fell and and easily just lost roots, one that the bird snatched away, no, Lord, but one that is sown deep into our hearts. And we know that this only happens by the power of your Spirit. So, Spirit, would you come and bless this time with the preaching of your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, there's a story of a famous violinist, uh, Fritz Kreisler, and he was an Austrian-born violinist, very famous uh, late 18, uh, 19th century, I think he died about 1960, sometime in there. But he had a show, uh, he had a concert to play in London, and so as he was waiting for his boat to depart, he had about an hour, and so he went down to the local music shop. And as he went and he was looking around, the, sto- the store owner was intrigued by all the details in his case. It was clearly an expensive violin, and so we asked the man, can I take a look at your violin? And he took it out and admiring it and remarking how exquisite of an instrument it was, the owner left the store only to return later with two policemen. And he pointed at the man and said, he's the thief. And the police officers came and announced he was under arrest. And he said, the man said, what for? They said, you have stolen this instrument from a very famous violinist. And they put handcuffs on him. How can that be? I am Fritz Kreisler. This is not stolen. This is my violin, he protested. 
You can't fool us. This is stolen. Come with us to the station. Well, as the man's boat was sailing soon, there was no time for a prolonged explanation. And so he said, give me the violin. And as they gave him the violin, he began to play them a piece that only Fritz Kreisler could play. And after he finished playing, the store owner and the two policemen were in tears at the beauty of such a piece of music. He looked at them and said, now that you know who I really am, you must let me go. The policeman had no choice, for he had proven that he was certainly no imposter, no thief. He had done what only the one true Fritz Kreisler could do. You know, in the same way, many thought Jesus was an imposter. If you actually look at the chapter before in 27, that's the very word that the Pharisees used as they were asking Pilate for guards to guard the tomb. They called Jesus an imposter. And he was led to the cross And as death placed its handcuffs around Jesus' wrist, as the accusations of our guilt were announced over him, it was not long before he also would be vindicated. As the innocent one, Jesus took our sins. He took our punishment upon himself. He was crucified. He was laid in a tomb. But he didn't die for his sins. He had none. He had died for ours in our place He had committed no crime. He had broken no law. In fact, he had upheld every standard. He had obeyed every command. He was guiltless, yet treated guilty. So while in the tomb, death had no choice but to let him go. He was certainly no imposter. He had done what only the perfect, sinless Son of God can do. And so as the charges were dropped, as his innocence was proven, he rose from the dead. You see, the tomb could not stay sealed. The stone could not remain unmoved. The breath had no choice but to revisit his lungs. Resurrection had no choice but to be the answer to his crucifixion. In the tomb, I imagine he said, death, you must let me go. Today we celebrate this very glorious, victorious resurrection of Jesus. But here's a question. What does an event that happened 2,000 years ago have to do with us today? Now if you say, well, because it's good news. Yeah, it's good, it's good news for Jesus. <laughs> We're very happy for him. But what does it mean for us? Why is it good news for us? Well, my text this afternoon is Matthew 28, verses 1 to 10. And from it, I'd like to consider this gospel truth. The resurrection of Jesus Christ both strikes and removes a fear in us, fear from our hearts, and so we tell it to others. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, it both strikes and it also removes a fear from our lives, and so we tell it to others. You see, because Jesus was raised from the dead, three things happened to us according to this passage. Three things. First, the resurrection strikes fear in us. Second, the resurrection removes fear in us. And third, the resurrection compels us to share its news. And so let's get started. Point one, the resurrection strikes fear in us. Look with me at verse two. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. At the appearing of this messenger of God, the stone over the tomb is rolled away. And that's symbolizing the empty tomb, symbolizing that Jesus has risen. 
And what's interesting is that this angel of the Lord at the resurrection takes on an appearance very similar to that of the transfiguration. Remember last week we saw in Matthew 17 that Jesus was radiating with glory. But that was just a preview. It was just a picture of a future, final, greater glory at the resurrection. In Matthew 17, too, Jesus was described in this way. Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. You see how the angel is described in such a similar way? His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. So the angel's countenance and the angel's clothes signify that Jesus was indeed risen from the dead. And so you have a moved stone, you have an angel, and both are pointing to the resurrection events. Christ is risen. He's not here anymore. And so what? Okay, so what? Well, in verse 4 we're told, And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Roman Soldiers were afraid. The resurrection event struck fear in their hearts. It wasn't a slight disturbance. It was a trembling that led to a paralysis. And in a great sense of irony, Matthew has great irony, the men who were charged to guard the tomb of a dead man are now themselves frozen like dead men. That's the first occurrence of fear. Second, when the faithful women who are identified in verse 1 as Mary... Magdalene and the other Mary, when they go to the tomb, they encounter the angel. And this is what the angel says to them in verse 6. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. And what's their response? Verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear. Do you notice the pattern? When people are confronted with the reality of the resurrection, fear is struck in their hearts. Why fear? Why would anyone come to face, face to face with this glorious, momentous occasion and first feel afraid? Here's the reason. It's because if Jesus really is alive, if he really was crucified and then raised from the dead as he said he would, as he promised he would, then everything else he said about himself must be true. And if everything he said is true, then your life and my life cannot stay the same. Think about it like this. Think about this. Jesus had taught many things in his life. He taught a lot of things about himself, who God was. He taught about the kingdom, humanity. He taught about the world. But most importantly, his teaching was based on his death and his resurrection. And so when Jesus was crucified, until he was raised from the dead, there was no way to believe and to know if anything he taught was actually true. You had no idea. Until his resurrection, all of the things he claimed in his life, they were unverified. And if the resurrection didn't happen, then it really doesn't matter what he claimed when he was alive. Who cares? If Jesus didn't resurrect, then he was simply either a lunatic because he was so self-deluded, he actually believed himself to be the Messiah, and it got him killed in the end. Right? He, was, he was so self-deceived that he thought he was fulfilling prophecy, and he believed it until the point where he was nailed on a cross. He's, he's a lunatic, maybe. Or second, maybe he was a liar. But if he's a liar, then he was malicious to the core. Because he, not only, he was not only lying to himself, tricking himself into believing it, He was not only tricking other people into believing this lie, but as a result of this lie, many people went on to give up their lives. They died for this lie. 
And then he took up, he kept up the charade, even though he himself knew it wasn't true. And eventually this lie took him to the cross where he died. Or a third option, he was telling the truth. The only way that you would know he's telling the truth is if he raised from the dead. C.S. Lewis uh, captures this well in his children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, In the book, uh, there are four siblings, and Lucy, the youngest girl, youngest sister, and her brother Edmund enter the magic wardrobe, and they enter, uh, they're transported to another place, another reality called Narnia. And when they come out, she tells her siblings about the experience, and they don't believe her. It sounds crazy to them. And then she turns to her brother Edmund and says, well, you were there, but even he denies it. But when Lucy insists that what happened was real, her older brother, Peter and Susan, they, 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 get, they, they begin to get a little worried. And so they go to the professor. They're staying at this man's house called, named the professor. And they go to him with their concerns about their younger sister. And they tell the professor everything Lucy has told them. And he pauses. And Lewis writes, he, he never interrupted. He pauses and he asks, how do you know that your sister's story is not true? And they're shocked. They've, Lewis writes, they've never heard an adult believe something like this. He's not nearly as dismissive as they are. And he goes on to ask Peter and Susan, does your experience lead you to regard your brother or your sister as more reliable? Which one's more reliable? He says, I mean, which is the more truthful? Peter says, that's just the funny thing about it, sir. Up till now, I'd have said Lucy every time. But then Susan says, We're not really worried about whether she's lying or not. We think maybe something's wrong with her. The professor responds, madness, you mean? Oh, you can make your minds easy about that. One has only to look at her and talk to her to see that she is not mad. And here's what the professor concludes. There are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, or she is mad, or she is telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies, and it's obvious that she is not mad, For the moment then, and unless any further evidence turns out, we must assume that she's telling the truth. C.S. Lewis works this amazing apologetic argument into a children's book. And what he illustrates in this dialogue is applicable to the claims of Christianity. Right? Think about this. Regarding all that Jesus claimed he was, all that he taught, all that he commanded, all that he promised, all that he warned of, either Jesus was a liar, none of it was true, he knew he was making it up, he was a lunatic, He thought it was real and true, but he wasn't. Or he was telling the truth. Everything he said is true. He really is the Lord. He really is the son of the living God. How can we be sure he's not a liar and a lunatic? Because of the resurrection. This means that every statement Jesus ever made is true. Every command Jesus gave is binding. Every identity that he claimed for himself must be who he is. Every promise he gave is real. Every warning he issued needs to be heeded. Really think about it. It must strike fear in your heart because it means you can't live life the way that you want to live life. You can't decide things how you please. You can't create your own truth. You can't define your own reality. If Jesus is resurrected, he's neither liar nor lunatic, but Lord. He's conquered the grave. He lives eternally. He's ransomed you with his death. And that means our lives are not our own to live. 
I mean, do you get it? If you really think about it, the weight of the resurrection, the implications of what this means for you, because it means that all he taught about heaven and hell and about the final judgment and about perfect righteousness being the standard to get into the kingdom of heaven and about the impossibility for you on your own efforts to enter that kingdom, all of these things are true. You can't simply decide to dismiss it. If all he said was true, then what he taught about giving to the needy, about forgiving your enemy, about the dangers of lust and greed and anger, all these things, they're not merely good teaching or exemplary moral living. They're the way that God has created us. They're binding. If Jesus really did resurrect, then what he demands of the world in terms of carrying the cross and following him, about forsaking father and mother and brother and sister, What he teaches about your sins being so bad that it required the Son of God to die on a cross to forgive them. All these things are true. And they're not just the teachings of another religious leader. He's not a religious leader. He's the risen Lord. And anybody who can make those kinds of demands on your life, anybody who teaches with this kind of authority, anybody who claims to have purchased you with his blood, how can you ignore this? If he said these things, he taught all these teachings, he made all these claims, he said he would die and resurrect, and then he did, you should be afraid. Because he can ask anything of you. He can demand anything from you. And he has every right to do so. You see, if the resurrection is true, then Jesus is who he said he was. And this means your life is not yours to live, but his to use. This should strike fear in us. But, this leads to our second point, the resurrection removes fear in us. You see, the resurrection is like a double-edged sword. For as much as it strikes fear in us, it also removes fear. Look at verse 5. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. And then later in verse 10, when the disciples encounter the risen Jesus, what is the first thing he says? He says, greetings, do not be afraid. You see, the event of the resurrection assures believers that there's ultimately nothing to be afraid of. As frightening as the resurrection may be, for those who believe it, for those who embrace it, for those who cherish it, for those who apply it, for those in whom it is the greatest comfort, peace, and hope. I mean, the resurrection is a wonderful thing. Think about it. Just as a blade, a blade to an enemy looks like a weapon, but a blade to a patient looks like an instrument of healing. Sure, the resurrection can be demanding, but when you understand it, when you really get it, you realize it actually means something entirely different. The resurrection doesn't say, be afraid. The resurrection says, have no fear. Do you know what the most frequent command in the Bible is? Think about it. You may be tempted to think it's something like, have no other gods before me, worship me, love one another. But it's actually, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid occurs over 300 times in the Bible. It is the most commonly said command Twice here in these 10 verses, God's people are told to not be afraid. So the question is, how does the resurrection remove fear from us? 
And the answer is because it reminds us that Jesus has gone before us. He's already gone where we're headed, and he's made the preparations. In verse 7, the angel says, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Jesus resurrects and he goes before the disciples. He's at Galilee. He's waiting for them to come. And then after that, what does Jesus do? He ascends into heaven. Why? Because he's gone before us and he's waiting for us there. Do you remember John 14, 2? In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. In his resurrection, Jesus Christ did not just go ahead to Galilee, but he went on ahead to heaven in order to secure a room for you in his house to secure for you a place in his kingdom, to secure for you a seat at his banquet table. So after this life, you're not headed into the great unknown, into some kind of mysterious abyss. Jesus has gone ahead of you. He secured your destiny. He's secured your eternity. And for this very reason, the resurrection doesn't just say, do not be afraid. The resurrection actually says, you have no reason to fear. No reason. You know, you know how the story ends. You know where you're headed. And knowing your eternity isn't just a future thing. It totally affects the present. We all have experiences of the way that knowing what's to come totally changes how you experience the now. When I was in college, I had to take four semesters of biblical Hebrew to graduate for my major. Really painful, really difficult stuff. And in the first two semesters, the first year, I was in this class with um, all of these doctoral students, these PhD candidates in the classics department, they were studying ancient Greek and Rome. And you know, these guys, because they studied ancient Greek and Rome, they wanted to take Hebrew for fun. <laughs> I guess that's what you do when you're getting a PhD in classics. And I, on the other hand, had to take it to graduate. So once they learned the basics of the course, they knew enough to teach themselves, so they stopped. So the third and fourth semester of Hebrew... It was just me and the professor. It was impossible to skip class. And I share this because, man, this class was difficult. And on one of the final exams, I had to translate several chapters of Genesis. And uh, I was so nervous. I was so uh, stressed. I was afraid that I was going to fail. And so in my desperation, I was studying the Hebrew. But then uh, I just decided, man, I'm going to print out 10 chapters of Genesis in English and just try to commit it to memory. Because I was, it was so difficult. And the day of the final came, I had barely slept. I had bloodshot, you know, eyes. And I had so much caffeine in my body. You could probably kill a small animal. Um, and I went in to take this exam. I had practically stayed up all week for seven days. Because, you know, if I, had, if I failed this exam, then I would fail the course. And if I failed the course, then I couldn't meet the requirements for my major. And then I wouldn't graduate. So I had a lot riding on this one exam, and then I came in, I just looked disheveled and stressed, and 
uh, the professor must have noticed because when she handed me the exam, right before I went to take it, she said, Andrew, you look stressed and terrified. I just want to let you know before you begin, no matter how you do, I'm going to give you an A. And then she said, uh, how can I not? You're the only student in the class. <laughs> now, think about that. What a relief. That's gospel. <laughs> That's good news. Because in that moment, a little, don't worry, you're going to get an A. All of a sudden, all my fears of failure were swept away. And in its place was hope. Knowing the end changed how I experienced the difficulty of the trial. It changed how I dealt with the pressure of possible failure. It removed the fears that I had been battling for a week in an instant. This is what knowing the end does. So in Christ's resurrection, in Jesus having entered heaven before us, he assures us the final outcome. We have no reason to fear anything in this life. We know the end of our story. We know where all of this is heading. The things that we fear, the things in this this life that give us anxiety or cause for worry, our fears of rejection, our fears of failure, our fears of disappointment, whatever it may be, those things are part of a story that you know will end with a happily ever after. Because Jesus Christ, through his suffering and death, took the bad, he rewrites our story so that everything you experience is entered into God's new narrative, God's new story with God's new ending for you. And what better ending, friends, is there than the resurrection? What better fear-relieving antidote than the promise of living in eternity with the smile of God upon us, fellowshipping with him, Knowing because we're in his presence, there's nothing to be afraid of. There's no fear with God. Only safety. See, the resurrection doesn't just tell us don't be afraid. It actually tells us you have no reason to be afraid. Because ultimately, whatever questions you have, God will have answers to your questions. God will bring redemption to the areas of brokenness. God will bring justice to your injustice. God will bring fulfillment to your longing. God will bring reconciliation to your relationships. God will bring order into your chaos. God will bring mending to your wounds. God will bring meaning to your void. You have no reason to be afraid. Jesus has conquered death. He's conquered Satan. He has conquered sin. There is no enemy that can stand in your way. There is no hurdle that he can't get you over. There is no wall that he cannot break through. There is no distance that he cannot bridge. There is no darkness that his light won't chase away. There is no fear that can stand in his presence. The one who has overcome the great and last enemy, the one who is risen and now alive, he says to you, do not be afraid. That's what the resurrection brings into our lives. Yes, it brings fear into our lives. We have no right to limit what he can ask of us. We have no right to refuse what he'll demand of us. We have no right to disobey what he commands of us. That's a fearful thing. But then you realize, what does he ask of us? What does he demand of us? What does he command of us? Simply, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Have no fear, for I am here. 
Third, the resurrection compels us to share its news. If everything we said about the resurrection is true, then the very nature, the very magnitude of this news compels us to share it. And this is what we see happening in this passage. Look with me at verse 7. In light of the resurrection, the angel says to the women, Then go quickly, and what? Tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And what did the women do in verse 8? So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Then the disciples encountered Jesus, who was risen in verse 10, and he says, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. You see how Jesus connects, do not be afraid, with go and tell. I didn't, I was resting. I didn't want to end the sermon with an imperative, with a go and evangelize. Because people say, oh, we hear that all the time. But I couldn't escape it. Do not be afraid, okay? God, I won't. I trust you. That's great for my, go and tell. Now think about how important their response to the resurrection was. What if these people... The women, the disciples, what if they saw the resurrected Jesus? They were so grateful for their salvation. They decided, okay, from now on, we're going to meet weekly in worship. One of you is going to have to go up there and preach and remind us of the resurrection. Somebody said, okay, I'll do it. And somebody said, okay, no, you have to lead music so we can sing songs about the resurrection. Okay, let's do it. And then someone says, well, where's food fit in? And they're like, oh, we're going to make a large group. It's going to be based on food. And it's going to be based upon talking about the resurrection. And then we're going to break it in small groups. And all of this great things happen and they formed the church. What if all these people who saw the resurrected Jesus did all of this, but nobody actually did what he commanded them, go and tell? If that happened one generation later, the news would be lost. The gospel would be in vain. It would be as if Jesus never resurrected in the first place. And the world would live in the fear of the mystery of what's after death. You see, it wasn't enough that the disciples and these women had their lives changed after the resurrection. They knew it wasn't enough. It compelled them to go and tell. So what? From the angel telling the women, telling the disciples, and then from the disciples telling the Gentiles, and the Gentiles taking it to the nations, and now we have it, so we take it to the ends of the earth. The good news that Jesus is alive, there's really nothing to fear. And so the good news to this state is spreading. You see, because they went and told, 2,000 years later, here we are in a little blue building in Chalfont, Pennsylvania, celebrating the resurrection. The natural question is this. If you've truly encountered the resurrection of Jesus and the peace that it brings into your life, if it has truly stripped away all fear, the question becomes, who have you told? Who are you telling? Who will you tell? If the resurrection really has made a difference in your life, if it really has removed the fear of people's opinion, if it's removed the fear of people's judgment, if it's removed the fear of being ridiculed, if it's removed the fear of not knowing the answers to difficult questions, if it's really removed the fear of losing respect, if you really know the resurrected Christ, then all those fears are swept away. Which means in the workplace, among friends, among family, in your community, in your neighborhood, in your classrooms, in the hallways, you can hear the voice of Jesus saying, go, go and tell. And then you say, but, but, and he says, do not be afraid. 
You see, one of the evidence of Christ's resurrection having changed and challenged you is seen in the way that you feel compelled to share. And so let me close with this illustration from church history about a man who knew Christ was raised from the dead and he knew what it meant for his Christian witness. John Chrysostom, an early church father from the 4th century, was a preacher who's known as the Golden Mouth, who boldly told the world about Christ. And he was brought before the empress, Eudoxia, who threatened him with exile, threatened to banish him if he continued the work of sharing the gospel. And as she threatened him, he said, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. But I will kill you, said the empress. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God, said John. I will take away your treasures. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. But I will drive you away from all your friends and you will have no one left. No, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. How was fear dealt with in his life, in John Chrysostom's life, that he could respond in such a way? How was his fear conquered and removed so he could remain bold and committed to go and tell in the midst of threats? It was the resurrection and all the fear that it melted away. You know, we live in a much less hostile time than he did. But we know the same Christ who was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. We know in the same way that because Jesus lives, there's a fear that strikes our hearts. He can ask anything of us because he's Lord. We know in the same way that because he lives, there's a fear removed from our hearts. He has gone before us and rewritten our stories with a happily ever after. But lastly, we know in the same way that because he lives, we should willingly and joyfully tell others. How important is this? your eyes drop just a little bit, how does Matthew choose to end this gospel account? What is Jesus' last recorded words in this gospel? Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. What is that? Go and tell. Why? Jesus says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What is he saying? What's there to fear if I'm with you? Be not afraid. My friends, Jesus is alive. And this is good news. There is now no reason to be afraid. And so we go and we tell. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus is alive And because he lives, we live. Because he lives, there is hope for the world. Because he lives, there is a way for us to spend eternity in fellowship with our God and our maker. Because he lives, we do not need to fear the uncertain. Because he lives, we do not need to fear what comes next. Because he lives, we do not need to fear whatever trial, suffering, hardship, valley, obstacle tornado, hurricane, tempest we find ourselves in because he lives. We do not need to be afraid. And I pray, God, that you would help us to know and to believe and see the way in which Christ's resurrection is not just a future thing. It's not just, okay, that means I'm going to go to heaven. 
but we understand the way in which it means that now I have no reason to fear. Christ has conquered the Goliath. Christ has brought down the walls of Jericho. Christ has bound the strong man. So we need not fear. Holy Spirit, work that into our hearts. Massage it in your gentle way so that it goes from in our mind to our heart that we would live without fear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I received the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who conquered the grave, and because he lives, gives us a blessed assurance. And the love of God the Father Almighty, in displaying his might and strength when he raised his son from the dead, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, who reminds us time after time when we forget and when the memory becomes hazy that Christ is alive and is waiting for us to be home. May the blessing of the triune God be with God's people, both now and forever. Amen. Hear the words of dismissal, Galatians 6, 9 and 10. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Go in peace, for he is risen.